John has written his letter because people have left the church that he's writing to and people who have remained in the church have been upset in their faith because of the departures of these others. So go back to chapter 2. We're finishing the series today, but a lot of the things that John writes about in chapter 5 are tied together, the threads are tied together in uh, from these earlier places. So chapter 2, verse 26, another place where John uses the phrase, I write these things, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So deceivers are at work and people who've remained in the church that have received John's letter are at risk of deception. So John says, I'm writing to you so that you won't be deceived. And then later on he says, I write to you so that you know you have eternal life. So one of the problems that the deceivers are trying to do is to derail these people from certainty and hope. Right Now, who are these deceivers? Well, a little, a little earlier in chapter 2, we read in verses 18 to 19, now many antichrists have come. Now, we talked about antichrists a few weeks ago. We won't go into it now, but it's a person who is opposed to Jesus and his message, as it's been revealed from the beginning. So in verse 19, John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So the people who are genuine in their faith in the Lord Jesus are the people who have remained, and they're the ones that John's writing to. And so John writes for the purposes of assurance. He wants uh, quality assurance. He wants the people who are reading his letter to be sure that the product that they've received is genuine and dependable. But he's also writing quality control because he wants to warn the people reading his letter, these are the features to watch out for in people who have perverted the message, who are trying to deceive you. Watch out for these things, they're signs of deception. Now he gives three tests, and we've looked at these repeatedly. The three tests are the truth test. Do you believe what's true? Are they teaching what's true? If they don't teach what has been part of the apostles' message, the eyewitnesses of Jesus, if it doesn't line up with the original message, then reject it. Because the apostles were taught by Jesus and they have brought the original message, true and undefiled. So in other words, John says, you can rely on me because I'm doing this in the power of the Spirit according to what Jesus taught me. If the message diverges, don't listen. The first test is the truth test. The second test is the obedience test. Do you obey the things that Jesus says to do? Clearly, the people who have left have decided that they're a bit beyond needing to obey because they're superior. And it seems that they've been claiming that they're without sin. And so John says, the truth test, believing truly about Jesus, but obeying Jesus. And then the last test is the love test. He says, you put all these things together, Jesus commands that we love one another. So one of the tests by which you can test your genuineness and by which you can spot the genuineness of others is, do they love the family of God? Jesus commands love, and if there's no love, then you're breaking his commands, which is a failure of obedience. But we fail in obedience when we fail to acknowledge that Jesus is the true God whose commands we should be obeying. So a failure in love is a failure in the other two tests as well because they all work together. So let's have a look at the first five verses of 1 John chapter 5. As John pulls all these threads together, 
He writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Can you see how all of these things are circling around and intersecting? Truth, obedience, love, believing rightly about who Jesus is and what he's done, obeying him because he's God, and loving the family of faith that have come to believe in him. So we see the truth and the love test very much in these first five verses. And so we read in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So in other words, to believe rightly about Jesus and who he is, that he is the Christ, he's the one that the Old Testament promised, like in Psalm 2 that we read before. If you believe that, then that's a sign that you've been born of God. Now to be born of God, uh, we've looked at that before, that's another way of saying born again that you read about in John 3. Uh, it's another way of saying you've been regenerated, that your heart has been made new, which is what the Old Testament prophets promised. So to have been born of God means that you have received eternal life. And if you've received eternal life, then death is no longer something to be feared because you already have eternal life in the present. And even though you might die physically, you will live on spiritually. So to be born of God is the key to eternal life. Now he says there, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Well, the flip side of that is everyone who does not believe that Jesus is the Christ is not born of God. So to say that Jesus is the Christ is to agree that Jesus is the king that God promised he would send. The anointed one who would bring peace and order to a fractured world. That's what the Old Testament is looking ahead to, the day that God intervenes to bring his rule to the earth. Then uh, John goes on and says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So if you've been born of God, you'll know whether you have or not, whether you acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. Then one of the consequences of that, one of the natural flow-ons of that, is that you'll love the other members of the family. It's not too hard to understand, is it? Not hard to do, is it? Yes. I've said this before and I'll say it again. We used to say at school on, uh, on, par- on those days when kids weren't around, um, I never said it, but lots of other people did. If I had a dollar for every time I heard this, I'd be retired now and living in Queensland. But people would say, schools are good when the kids aren't here. Or schools would be all right if it wasn't for kids. Well, unfortunately, I've heard too many people say churches would be all right if it wasn't for people. Right? Well, that's the trouble because churches are people. And Jesus says we've got to love each other. Why? Because we have one Father and we've been adopted into His family. Now, isn't it a tragedy when families fall apart? In, in our natural world, when families fall apart, it's just a horrible thing. It's a terrible thing when Christian families fall apart. And it usually happens because there's no love. 
Jesus says it's a new commandment that he gives, that you love one another. That has to be a command because it's not easy. And yet, people like you and me have to keep working at it. Now, there'll be some people in this room you like more than others. It's just the way things work. But we're commanded to love each other. Jesus says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. When? When you love one another. Now, you're not going to find much love out in the world. But you should find it in churches. And churches without love are failing one of the three tests and probably the other two as well. It doesn't matter how much you know about Jesus. If you know about Jesus but don't love, you're failing at a very important point. So churches need to be places where love is normal. Where we're so submitted to the things that Jesus wants, we're prepared to live for others. That's what churches are. It's a big call, but it's just so important. But notice that his commands are not burdensome. Why are the commands of Jesus not burdensome? Because when you submit to them, your life takes on an order and a beauty that makes it seem pleasant. When you're railing against God, when you're straining against the thing that God God tells you to do, you're going to find there's no peace. But when you submit your life to Jesus and live according to the way he tells you to do, you're going to find that your life takes on an order and a beauty and a character that makes it seem right in a world where lots is wrong. His commands are not burdensome. When you do what Jesus says, you're going to find, just as he says in the book of Matthew, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. You know, what, you know when Jesus says that? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden. And he uses this agricultural metaphor. If you wanted to get lots of work done in the old days before tractors were invented, you put two cattle together. And so that the the strong one wouldn't drag ahead and and cause the weak one to fall back, they yoked them together because you got more out of two than you did out of one. So you put this wooden bar across the top of them. Jesus says, come to me, yoke yourself to me, join yourself to me. We'll get more done that way. But he says, my yoke is easy. It won't chafe. My burden is light. The commands of Jesus are not burdensome because he's good and he's kind and he's true and when we live his way, things just work. It doesn't mean life's going to be a breeze but in the midst of the difficulties, you'll find a hope and a help that you couldn't have found anywhere else. His commands are not burdensome. So when Jesus says, love the brotherhood, love the family of faith, He's saying it because in the end, that's what's best for us. And so John Wright goes on and he says, this is the victory in verse 4. Everyone who's born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the top and tail of this little section has to do with believing rightly about Jesus. In the first instance, that he's the Christ. In verse 5, that he's the Son of God. He's both. To say that Jesus is the son of God is a statement of faith. It's a statement of what we believe. Now, to say that he's the son of God doesn't mean that God had a wife and Jesus was the offspring in that way. That's not what it means. The Bible is consistent in teaching that Jesus is eternal. Jesus had no beginning. He's always been God. So if you read back to John's Gospel... 
He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus was born as a human, but he's always existed as the eternal son of God. These are deep things, but we believe them to be true. Jesus as the son of God. I asked a few weeks ago if you understood the Trinity. And and I think we agreed that nobody really does, right? We believe it, but we don't fully understand it. We're going to talk more about the Trinity in a moment because we have to. But how do you describe God? How do you explain God who has always been to people who might get to live 80 or 90 years? How do you get to explain an eternal person to people who just are caught in living just a short little lifespan? Well, you have to use analogies. You have to use human language. And so this is an analogy. To call Jesus the Son of God is a a picturesque way of describing his relationship. Well, back in the ancient world, it went like this. Sons did what fathers did, usually. There were no universities back in those days. Most boys did what their dads did. Most girls did what their mums did, right? But if your dad was a fisherman, you'd become a fisherman. Jesus was called the carpenter of Nazareth. So we conclude that Joseph, his earthly father, was a carpenter. Sons do what dads do. Jesus, as the son of God from all eternity, comes to earth, born in Bethlehem, to show us what God is like. Because sons do what dads do. You want to know about the father? Look at the son. Jesus is the son of God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed king. But he's this one in such a close relationship with God that when we say we know Jesus, we can say we know God. That's what Jesus said to uh, to the disciples. He says, they, they said to him, show us the Father. He says, you've been with me this long? He says, look at me and you'll see the Father because sons do what dads do. And so it says here that we can overcome the world when we believe those things because that's the faith that overcomes. The faith that John's talking about is is this right believing about who Jesus is and what he does. And with that faith, with that faith in Jesus, we can overcome. Now, look there in in verses 4 to 5 again. You'll notice that there's the word overcome. I'm reading the ESV, English Standard Version, so... Uh, one who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory it's a very similar word so this is the overcoming that has overcome the world who is it that overcomes the world all of those words are variations of the Greek word Nike which is where we get the name for the very famous sports shoe right so the people who made that sports shoe used an ancient Greek word Nike was the Greek goddess of victory and that was the one that they used to pray to if they wanted a battle victory. Well, the, the makers of those shoes think, well, if we call our shoes Nike, the people that buy them might win more races, right? They're going to be victorious. Well, to overcome is to have victory. How do we overcome the world? We conquer the world by our faith. And our faith is in Jesus, the Son of God and the Christ. Now, the, the world... The world. What does that mean? Well, it's the system that we're caught up in. And we've got no choice but to live in the world, do we? Right? But Jesus says he's not from this world, he's from another world. He's from, And so we need to live our lives in this world as though we actually belong to the other world. 
And so we're not going to let this world squeeze us and shape us. So we take on the characteristics of what this world system wants to do. This world system says, get as much as you can, take revenge where you need to, love only those who are nice to you, and if they stop being nice to you, stop loving them. So this world's got all sorts of systems, and we spend one and a half hours a week in church, and then we go back to the world and watch all this telly that says, no, you got it wrong for that one and a half hours. We've got to be careful that the world doesn't shape us. We've got to be shaped by the world to which we really belong, which is the world that Jesus has come from and gone back to. And one day, when Jesus comes to earth, that's why we pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Lord Jesus, come back and make this world a place where your will is done. And so to be in the world means that we're in alien territory. Because in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world, John says, or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So don't fall in love with this world system. Verse 17 of 1 John 2, John writes, this world is passing away. So if you're in love with this world, you're in love with something that's disappearing. But the world that we can't see is going to endure and that's where eternal life will be lived out. Now the world, if you were to look at the the idea of the world in John's gospel, the world's in darkness. It's under God's condemnation. And in chapter 12 of John's gospel, chapter 12 verse 31, John the apostle records Jesus' teaching that this world, this world system is actually ruled by the evil one. So we go out from our little gathering here where we're huddled around God's word, drinking it in, wanting to live our life according to the things that we find there. We go back to a world. I'm not saying that everybody in the world that you're going back to is a Satanist, but the fact is that the Bible teaches that this world system is to an extent under the control of the evil one. If you don't believe me, look at John 12:31, where Jesus teaches that. And so in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 which we're going to read in a moment, John writes, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Underline it. That's the the world. So how can you overcome a world which is ruled by the evil one? You've got the answer in verses 4 and 5. By faith. You can have the victory. By believing in Jesus, you can have the victory. Now what does it mean to have faith? What does it mean? It's a word we use, isn't it? Well, faith is a very similar word to belief. And it's a very similar word to trust. They're all synonyms. They're all words that mean essentially the same thing. So have faith means to believe. It means to trust. Now, I've spoken to plenty of people who, and I've read books where they say that faith is only for weak people. And they'll tell you that being scientific means that we believe in objective facts. And faith is like guesswork or wishful thinking. So faith, they say, is what you wish would be the case. As you know, our daughter Sally was very, very ill and died last year. But she was a person who remained in faith to the end. And so a friend of mine not long ago said, of course, she had her faith. And I guess what he meant was she had this crutch that helped her make sense of illness. No, 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 not at all. 
Sally knew Jesus. Jesus is the object of her faith and she knows that he is someone on whom she can completely depend. That's what faith is. Now, some years ago, I broke my leg. I was on a school camp and uh, playing footy with the kids and I fell awkwardly and broke my ankle. And it hurt like all billy but I got work cover. And the work cover paid for physio. So I went dutifully to the physio for as often as I needed to and uh, did all the exercises that the physio told me. And the physio said to me, part of what we're doing here, because I had to stand on this balance thing. So there was this ball with a board around it and I had to stand one leg on one side of the ball and I had to go like that. She said, what we're trying to do is to retrain your brain to have faith in your right leg. Because you see, my brain had learnt that that right leg didn't walk very well for about six weeks because it was in plaster and I had to have crutches. So I had to retrain my brain to trust my right leg because it had let me down. The left one was pretty good, but the right one had let me down. And when she said it, it made a lot of things click into place. And for a long time after that, as I was walking, I was really ginger. If I sort of stumbled a bit and I could feel myself going, I had to retrain my brain to trust my leg because it had let me down. Faith, belief and trust are all synonyms. You see, the thing is, faith is not blind, it's not wishful thinking, it's when we come to know someone like Jesus well enough that we say, we can depend on you because you won't let us down. That's what faith is. Faith is dependence, it's active trust. Another word that John uses here is confidence. Do you know the word confidence? Happy with that? It's a Latin word, did you know that? You can speak Latin. Right? Because fide in Latin means faith. Con means with. So confidence means to operate with faith. How about that? So faith, trust, belief, confidence. They're not wishful thinking because they're located on an object, Jesus, who is completely dependable. Now, when you depend on Jesus, the world may do its worst to you But in him, you've overcome it. You've had the victory. How about that? Is that good? Is that good good news? It is good news. Do we believe it? Do we live tomorrow as though we believe it? Or do we just believe it in church? That's what John wants us to come to. Who is it that overcomes the world? He that believes, the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. When we come by faith to Jesus, we have a confidence that things will work out. So, verses 6 to 12. This is he, Jesus, the Son of God, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. 
Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, I've said before, and I'll say it again, 1 John's a difficult book to preach. Uh, I reckon it would do you all good if you went home and read it all in one go and then do it again tomorrow. I think 1 John is a book almost that we need to absorb. It's not laid out like Paul's letters where one thing leads clinically and logically to... Well, there's a lot of logic in it, but John, John writes in a different kind of way. This is a book that you've just got to read and read and absorb. Let it go into your pores. Let it go into the fibres of who you are. There's some tricky bits, but the, the, the language is so simple in many respects, and, and, and he repeats himself that you've got to make these connections that you can only do when you've read it a few times and become familiar with it. Now, this is a difficult part of the book. What does it mean to say that Jesus came by water and the blood? Now, remember that John's written because people have left the church and that's rattled the people that have stayed. And so he's dealing often with the sorts of things that these antichrists have been trying to persuade and deceive the others with. So what does it mean that Jesus came not by water only, but by the water and the blood? Now, probably, he says, not by water only because both parties, the people that have remained and the people that have left, both believe that Jesus came by water. We've got to work out what that means. The blood bit's not that hard. We'll get to that in a moment. What does it mean that Jesus came by water? Well, that phrase is used three times in John's Gospel and every time it's used in relation to John the Baptist. John came by water, right? John the Baptist was a baptiser, and amongst others, he baptised Jesus, right? But we also read in John's Gospel that Jesus did some baptisms. Actually, the disciples did them, but Jesus was known as a baptiser. But John's Gospel also tells us that more important than the water baptisms Jesus did is that a bigger part of his ministry was sending the Holy Spirit, and that's described as a baptism. Because the Holy Spirit is Jesus' gift to everybody who believes in him to equip them for living his way. And so probably what John has in mind here is saying Jesus the baptizer wants to baptize you with the spirit. And the spirit who lives in you joins the person of Jesus to you in a way that helps you overcome the world, in a way that regenerates you so that you're born again, so that you have eternal life. So Jesus came by water and he came by blood. Coming by blood is a reference to his cross. And we've already seen in 1 John chapter, chapter 1 um, that, that uh, Jesus shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven. A price had to be paid to forgive sins and Jesus laid down his life. Now that's something also that comes out very clearly in, in, uh, in, in John's Gospel. But we're told in chapter 1, verse 7, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So Jesus came by water. He came baptising, but he wants to baptise with the Spirit. How does he baptise with the Spirit? Because he laid down his life, his blood, and his blood cleanses us from sin. And when we put our trust in Jesus, he will cleanse us from sin and make us fit for the kingdom of heaven. He'll give us eternal life. John writes that if you don't believe that, you don't believe in God. And it seems that these antichrists who have gone out have stopped believing that they had any sins that needed to be paid for. So they're denying the person of Christ 
and they're denying his work, what he came to do, right? You know, we don't even live up to our own standards, do we? Do you ever find yourself not quite measuring up to what you think you ought to do? We see Jesus is perfect and God's perfect. And the standard for entry to his eternal kingdom is perfection. And we don't measure up. And the only way that the Bible envisages for us being able to measure up is by the grace we were singing about before, that Jesus becomes our substitute and takes our place. He dies the death that we deserved. And his blood was shed so that we could be put right with God. We can have eternal life. These people, the Antichrist, were saying, no, we're past that. We think we can approach God with special knowledge. Knowledge that is limited to just a few of the elite. We'll get there on knowledge. And John says, no, the only way you can get there is by faith in the Son. Faith in the one who laid down his life, who shed his blood for you, which cleanses you from all sin. And so we get to verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we ask of him. We're back to the quality assurance again. John wants the people reading this letter then and now, he wants us to know that we can have eternal life. How can we be sure that we've bought the right product? How can we have confidence? Well, he's given us the tests, the truth test, the obedience test and the love test. He says eternal life means being born of God. Because you see, the thing is you can't give a gift that you don't own. Only God has eternal life. Only God can give it. Jesus is God from all eternity. He can give eternal life because it's his to give. And so John says when you believe in the name of Son of God, you can know. So here's the question here's the challenge do you know that Jesus is the son of God do you believe that do you believe that Jesus is God's promised king do you believe that do you believe that Jesus laid down his life for your life because if you do welcome to eternal life isn't that good you don't have to go on wondering you don't have to wonder will I pass the test of judgment day the the verdict's in Because John's given you a diagnostic tool. He's given you this assurance, this quality assurance control. You can know now today that you have eternal life. Believe that Jesus is God's promised king. Believe he's God's son. Believe he laid his life down for you. And you can have confidence. I may have told you this story before, but I'll tell you again. Some years ago, 1979 it was, uh, Billy Graham, the famous American evangelist, was in Australia doing a, a series of talks in um, in Sydney and he was interviewed on a current affair program. You know, a current affair, it's still on. It's the only time, to my knowledge, I don't watch it often, but, but I'm not sure that it happens very often, but the entire program was given over to an interview with Billy Graham. All of the half an hour. The host was Mike Willisey. Now, Mike Willisey was brought up a Roman Catholic, uh, but at that stage he, he professed no belief. But he interviewed Billy Graham because he's a famous person with an international reputation. And at one stage during the interview, he said, Mr Graham, are you going to heaven? And Billy answered quick as a flash, he said, yes, I am. And so Willisie said, that's arrogant. And Billy Graham said, no, it's not. 
He says, it's got nothing to do with me. He says, I'm a sinner. I deserve to go to hell. It's got everything to do with Jesus. He said it very calmly. He said it very gently. He wasn't saying it confrontingly. He was just owning up to the truth. He said, no, it's got nothing to do with me. But he had this confidence that radiated. You could see it. It was a confidence that came from God. Are you going to heaven? Do you have eternal life? You can know that you have eternal life because the life is in the Son. Believing in his name. It's not what you do, it's, what you've, it's what you, what's been done for you. And so we have this confidence that means that God will hear and answer our prayers. Now we haven't got time to go into every detail of this passage. It's so wonderful and so beautiful. If there's things I've left out that you really wanted me to talk about, come and talk to me over a cup of tea. Um, but we, we need to finish the passage. Verses 16 to 21, bringing this first letter to an end. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, again, that's a complicated passage, but I'm pretty sure this is what it means. The sin that leads to death is the sin that's been committed by the Antichrist who've rejected Jesus, the Christ, and the Son of God and the Saviour of the world. They've said, no, we don't need him. So they've left the church because they've come into higher knowledge. To turn your back on Jesus Christ is the only sin that can't be forgiven. To turn your back permanently on Jesus and say, no, I'll do it my way, is the one sin on judgment day that can't be forgiven. That's the sin that leads to death. If you see a brother committing a sin not leading to death, we'll pray for them. So in other words, if you notice that someone's slipping away, drifting off, pray for them. Talk to them, but pray for them. But the sin that leads to death is rejecting the Lord Jesus, his person and his work. And so we go on to verse 19. We know that we are from God. Here's this diagnostic test again. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's a funny way to finish the letter. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Nothing's been said about idols up until now. I think what he means is, those people who've left the church, they're worshipping something else. And anything that takes the place of the worship of the one true and living God is an idol. So don't go with that. Stay with what you've heard from the beginning, says John, because that's the true message that was taught to me by Jesus, who is the message. And it's the message that I've handed down in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now notice here, this, this passage teaches the Trinity. But if you don't understand the Trinity, God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. They're all God, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. But they're all God. One God in three persons. Now have a look at this, the Trinity in action. Go back to verse 6. In verse 6 you read there, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies. 
The Spirit testifies. We'll have a look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Who testifies? Well, the Spirit in verse 6 and God in verse 9. The Spirit is God. Now come on down to the end of the passage into verse uh, 20. The Son of God, that's Jesus Christ, has come so that we may know him who is true. Who's true? God. God the Father. So you can only know the Father through the Son. Press on. The Son of God is the true God. So Jesus the Son is the true God and his eternal life. Now we know that because we've seen it in verse 11 that God has given us eternal life in his Son. So Jesus the Son is the true God and he gives us knowledge of the true God. But then it goes on. Um, The Holy Spirit is the truth. So the Holy Spirit is the truth who testifies truly. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is the true God. God is the true God. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. And you'll see it there in 1 John chapter 5. So John writes because he wants to assure people like us that we can know that we have eternal life. That's quality assurance. He writes as well for quality control purposes. Watch out for these things. They're characteristics of people who have departed from the true faith. So the challenge for us today is do we believe the truth about God, as, about Jesus as it's been revealed here, that he is the true king and that he is the son of God? Do we believe that? Do we believe that he died to save us from our sins? First test, second test, obedience. Do you do what he says? Do you love to do what Jesus says? Or do you find his commandments a chore? Third test, do you love the other members of God's family? Because we're not talking about perfection in any of those things. It doesn't mean you have to understand everything. And of course we sin, of course we get let down at times. But the fact is if he's a faithful God who will forgive us when we repent. But if you can look deep inside and say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I love to obey him, though imperfectly. I'm trying really hard to love the family of faith. Then you can know that you have eternal life. Because that's why John wrote. So let's pray. Uh, Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for these great and glorious words. I pray that you would help us all to search our hearts very deeply, to make sure that we're people who believe in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, the one sent from heaven to be our Saviour. Uh, Father, if there's anyone here doubting these things or not sure, I pray that you would not give them rest until they find their rest in you. Uh, We thank you for this great and glorious message. Please help us to meditate deeply on it and speak speak it into our hearts, into every fibre of our being. By your spirit we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.